Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Popular Culture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Woke, and today I'll be talking to Dr. Kate Pollock about her book, Ethics in the Gutter, Empathy and Historical Fiction in Comics, published with Ohio State University Press, 2017. Kate Pollock is a writer, artist, performer, and scholar specializing in comics, poetry, 21st century women writers, and the literatures of genocide. She is an instructor and research associate in the English department at Florida Atlantic University, where she teaches writing and literature, focusing on poetry, the representation of violence, and graphic narrative. Her book, Ethics in the Gutter, Empathy and Historical Fiction in Comics, was nominated for an Eisner Award. The book investigates the intersection of ethics and empathy in graphic narratives from autographics to historiographic metafiction through the following framing questions. First, how do writers and artists use the form of graphic narratives to critique the ethical dimension of readers' empathetic engagement with characters set in a historical event? Second, how are readers' effective engagement with graphic narratives complicated by focalization and point of view? Third, how does the depiction or implication of violence in visual form complicate the reader's ethical relationship to focalizing characters? Fourth, what can fictional graphic narratives offer in discussions about affect and ethical engagement with texts that deal with real-world violence? And finally, she seeks to explore how fictional graphic narratives that depict historical realities engage the reader differently than the well-researched genre of autographics. This book's most important questions surround how we receive and interpret representations of history, considering the ways in which we think about we what we know about historical atrocities and how that can be at odds with the convoluted circumstances surrounding violence. Beginning with a new look at Watchmen and including examinations of such popular series as Scalped and Hellblazer, as well as Bayou and Dio Gratias, the book questions how graphic narratives create an alternative route by which to understand large-scale violence. Ethics in the Gutter explores how graphic narratives' representations of violence can teach readers about the possibilities and limitations of empathy and ethics. Kate Pollock argues that, and I quote, in terms of representation, that when we view an image, the scenery and character interactions within the panel define the parameters whereby we imaginatively enter the world of the comic. That, quote, readers of comics too experience bodily echoes of the motions and actions they observe means that there are several levels by which readers perceptually connect with the comics page, including traditional physical levels like turning or scrolling, physical mental levels, embodied simulation, and attention to points of view, as well as the imaginative levels in which readers fill in a connection. This has repercussions for how we understand our emotional engagement with characters, as well as how we understand the function of representation along the visual verbal planes of comics. 
All right, Dr. Kate Pollack, welcome to the show. And Kate, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, your intellectual or academic background, and what led you to this topic? It's a complex story. Uh, I've I come to con- I came to comics very early as a child. Like I was growing up in San Francisco, my parents were very poor uh, and. Uh, both worked like a lot of jobs and uh, I was an only child so like I wasn't like left on my own a lot but I was kind of without my parents they kind of arranged things so they'd uh, be working alternate hours so we didn't have a lot of family time but they'd always bring me home comics uh, whenever they were you know out to work because this was like a cheap uh, present that they could kind of get me that communicated their care Uh, So I had this huge collection of like Archie comics and My Little Pony comics and all of these others uh, that will be familiar to to many people who were growing up in like the 1980s. And so comics were kind of very much associated with love for me. And uh, I was all like I grew up in a household of writers. Uh, my uh, my dad is a poet. Uh, uh, my mom uh, mainly focuses on uh, epistolary and journaling. Uh, but I was I was very much an artist at the time, and uh, so most of my work was in in terms of drawing. And uh, this kind of like brought me closer to my parents' interests as well. And then I hit high school and being into comics was geeky. And so I kind of betrayed my own interests and uh, like kind of set comics aside. I still kept a lot of those comics from when I was a kid, but, uh, uh, but, and like secretly, of course, every night read Calvin and Hobbes to kind of get myself to sleep. Uh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes was always my kind of go-to in terms of, uh, soothing me about the complications of the world. Uh, and then I hit college and suddenly comics were cool again. And like it's, uh, and I had sort of missed some of the DC vertigo revolution. Uh, and, uh, so I essentially set to work, like catching myself up and I started dating a guy who, uh, had a huge comics collection uh, and, but, a, uh, you know, probably our uh, second or third date, I was over at his house, uh, and he pulls out his like pull files. Uh, and, uh, the first comic I pull out is Hellblazer and I'd heard of Hellblazer, but I hadn't read Hellblazer. Uh, and over the course of the next like two weeks, I did nothing but read Hellblazer, uh, and essentially caught myself up to where the series was at that time, uh, and that kind of launched me into, uh, you know, uh, the DC Vertigo universe and uh, uh, and what has become so far a lifelong investment in that particular uh, that particular like niche area, uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, uh, many other imprints as well. Uh, but uh, after uh After undergrad, I went into my master's program, which was in creative writing poetry. And I was uh, assigned into this one class that we all had to take called ropes, where you had a once weekly class, uh, but you also had to attend a lecture every week, uh, like uh, some visiting scholar and so on. And uh, this, this kind of 
you know, lecture series slash class was almost universally like uh, despised by the grad students because it required a lot of extra effort. Uh, but I freaking loved it. Like I, I took uh, uh, over my time at UC, I had to take ropes twice. And I think I took it four times uh, because I, I was like, I'm not going to get myself out to these lectures unless I have to. Uh, and the first one was uh, Writing Sex by uh, Jonathan Alexander. And ooh, like it could have been, it could have been a disaster because like I was like a little uncomfortable talking about sex at the time. That's changed in recent years. Uh, I was like nervous about talking about issues in the queer community because I didn't want to offend anyone. That changed partially because of that class and it giving me the vocabulary to better kind of uh, talk through things. And uh, he was the first one to encourage me to uh, do my final paper on a comic. And that final paper in his class actually wound up becoming the fifth chapter in Ethics in the Gutter. Uh, obviously rewritten a great deal, but uh, because I was a little master's student, uh, very unsure of myself at the time. Uh, and uh, it, that kind of set me on the pathway. And during my PhD, I was lucky enough to have a number of professors, including uh, Dr. Jennifer Glazer, Dr. Gary Weissman, and Dr. Beth Ash, who were very patient with my interest in comics. Uh, Dr. Jay Toomey was also a, a big supporter there, uh, as was uh, 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 Dr. Michael Griffith. And, uh, and I'm sure I'm forgetting uh, others as well, but uh, uh, but it's one of the reasons that I stayed at University of Cincinnati for my PhD because everyone is kind of like, yeah, this is a weird project that we don't know much about, uh, and and it was just at the cusp where comics were becoming legitimized as like objects of scholarly study in a more kind of like widely understood way, uh, and. Uh, it's, you know, my first encounter with comics theory, like most people, I think, was like Scott McCloud's uh, understanding comics. Uh, but this was about the time that uh, uh, that Hillary Shute's work was coming out, that Charles Hatfield's work was coming out. Uh, it, and, uh, you know, many other scholars uh, who were doing all this bizarre and interesting work uh, and the field kind of hadn't congealed into like a methodological practice yet, which I still don't think it really has. I it, like, it's one of the reasons I continue to love comic studies so much. Like we're all kind of like, oh, you did this in a totally different way than I would. Cool. Like it's a very welcoming field. And uh, it, and, you know, I just love that. I love that there's so much room for all. And I also love that like, Part of what drew me to comics was just my general interest in kind of like objects of low culture. Uh, I'm like, I'm personally like a pretty tacky person. Like I have a lot of leopard print. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Oh, I just want to say uh, for anyone who cannot see, uh, when you say low culture, you're making the uh, scare quotes bunny ears there. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, it, I sarcastically say low culture because, uh, as most folks who are uh, listening to this will know, uh, comics are anything but low. Uh, but they're associated with uh, more with uh, many marginalized communities. They're so uh, associated with, uh, you know, uh, people act like it's not real reading, and uh, it, and. 
once again, I think most comic scholars would laugh at such, uh, such a thing and increasingly more scholars in the more broad academic community would laugh at such a thing. But uh, it, there's still that kind of popular per perception of uh, it, them being associated with childhood or with people who, quote, can't read good uh, and so on. And just going back to like that idea of uh, being like a tacky person that's coming out of growing up in Appalachia and taking a great deal of pride in not uh, really uh, thinking much of the people who like to look down on stuff uh, and resisting all of those kinds of normalizing impulses. And, and in some senses, that's like atonement for abandoning some of my interests when I was a teenager uh, because they weren't socially acceptable. Uh, and this includes uh, like Appalachian literatures. This includes uh, uh, it, uh, various types of performance poetry. This includes comics, of course. Uh, this includes a lot of things that are seen as, quote, less literary, but uh, in fact have all of the same literary merits or even different ones that aren't touched on in kind of traditional classical literary fiction. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's it, it, it scholarly interests were as much kind of personal and biographical as they were uh, just coming out of a deep intellectual investment and excitement about the possibilities of the form. Great. Thank you for that introduction. Um, now, your title, Ethics in the Gutter, is uh, touching on a couple different ideas about the gutter. Uh, I wanted to start off by asking, how does the gutter create what you call this room to imagine connections? And where does the empathetic or imaginative collaboration come into play when you're looking at the comics that you looked at for your corpus here? Oh, this is such a this is such a difficult question because it came from so many different places. Like, it, you know, obviously it was inspired partially by Scott McLeod's idea of imaginative closure across the gutter. But as uh, Barbara Postema has, post, uh, has pointed out, uh, I think really compellingly, like that doesn't actually occur in the space of the gutter as you're reading because you need both sides, uh, like both panels to kind of like effectively close. And of course this gets much more complicated when you're looking at closure over the course of a page and so on. I more think of it as the spaces in poetry. And one of the things I'm gonna be talking about later is my uh, upcoming project, com uh, The Poetics of Comics, uh, because the gutter essentially serves the same function as line breaks and stanza breaks, where there's room to kind of breathe between those and you need whatever's on both sides in order to fully understand what that empty space means. Uh, sometimes I like to think of comics in the way that I think of Kenneth Patchen's uh, The Murder of Two Men by a Kid Wearing Lemon-Colored Gloves. Uh, which repeats the word wait multiple times spaced out on the page. And then the final word is now. Uh, the entire poem is deceptively simple. And yet whenever I'm thinking about it, I think about the images it creates just through the title and these spaces between this one word repeated. And uh, I, I think of the gutter as uh, this articulation of the imagination, this uh, uh, like 
Because like I always think of it as the space into which to project the imagination, but I've increasingly uh, been thinking about it as almost like a grammatical element that promotes that imaginative uh, engagement. Uh, and in terms of imaginative engagement, uh, that's kind of where the ideas of ethics and empathy come in as well. Uh, whenever we're asked to empathize, we're being asked to occupy another subject position as if we were that person. Uh, people throw off empathy as if it's this very easy thing that you can kind of like teach people, but then like render sort of promiscuously. I don't think empathy is easy. Uh, I think sympathy is really easy. Uh, like it's very easy to uh, show sympathy and compassion for other people. Empathy takes a lot of work because it involves having a sense of uh, backstory, of biography, of motivations. And this idea of getting a handle on what, pe uh, what actually motivates other people uh, as uh, one of the mainstays of being able to really understand what's prompting them to react to things in, uh, in the way that they are, to feel in the way that they are. And that's one of the things that I see comics uh, promoting in very interesting ways, uh, enough information where you can create this kind of sketch within your mind about like the motivations and identity and values of this particular character or set of characters uh, and how the kind of ethical decisions they make are affected by uh, essentially the choices they have available. Uh, and that's kind of the excitement about it. Yeah. If I can ask a follow-up question, I love the language that you're using to describe this. Can I ask you, how does reading poetry inform how you read comics? Oh, it it's such an interesting cross-pollination, especially because, uh, you know, once again, I grew up in a household where poetry was kind of an everyday thing. We didn't go to church on Sundays. We went to uh, Southgate House, uh, which was a musical venue in Northern Kentucky. And we uh, occupied the third floor and we did poetry readings. And it was very much a multimedia event. Uh, uh, me and my cousins would do drawings of the poems as they were going on. We would all perform poetry. There were bongos and there were recorders and there were guitars occasionally and banjos. And, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I didn't, I, Learning to think of literary forms as separate was something that happened to me in school that never happened to me like in my household. Uh, there was always a lot of kind of cross-pollination. And, you know, I grew up writing poems that were also comics. I grew up with broadsides on the wall, which is something I've only recently discovered. Almost no one knows what they are anymore. Uh, broadsides are uh, essentially, uh, essentially uh, prints of poems that incorporate some artistic element. Uh, and so sometimes that's, uh, a, a, it's an image that illustrates something about the poem. Sometimes it's something that adds to the poem. Uh, sometimes it responds to the poem. Uh, it's, it, broadsides have their own kind of grammar. And uh, I grew up with those being like part of the art that was available in the house. So it's like that kind of integration was always just there. Uh, and in terms of like how I read them, uh, when I'm thinking about uh, poetry, I'm thinking about this as 
an art form of precision of language. Uh, one of the reasons that poems tend to be short, although not all poems, uh, is because the poet's craft is choosing the right word for that space, which is a much more complex task than people usually give it credit for. Uh, and in terms of comics, you only have so many words you can fit in that word bubble or that uh, text box. You got to choose the right ones that are going to work well with that imagistic content. And so poetry is usually promoting developing an image in the mind's eye through that kind of precision of word choice, whereas comics have that image already kind of embedded in, but there's always a tension between the visual, verbal, uh, kind of communicative uh, uh, pathways. And so the kind of gaps of the gutter, the gaps between the stanzas, uh, it, uh, those have those resonances, but also, you know, Things like concrete poetry exist as well, where, uh, you know, the poem itself is, it's, uh, the words themselves are set into a certain shape. And I think that has uh, certain connections with the comics form too, in terms of how we stage uh, dialogue bubbles and text boxes and the location that we put them and so on. One of the most famous examples of that is in Mouse, uh, where, uh, uh, Spiegelman depicts uh, Artie and Vladek talking, Vladek saying, uh, uh, oh yeah, they uh, they swung these children against the wall until they didn't cry anymore. Uh, but the uh, dialogue bubble is obscuring the actual leavings of this uh, poor child, specifically because Vladek had not seen this himself. It had been a friend who had told him about this. And so the placement of the dialogue bubble is itself communicating something significant about the attribution of this uh, story. Is that yeah. all making sense so far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thank you. That's a that's a great example to point to uh, to illustrate illustrate this. <laughs> so uh, if I can uh, bring you back to some of the ideas that led you to create this book, you note in the introduction that the idea for the book's topic came out of an experience where, and I quote you here, rather than engaging with the issues of representation we had lectured on at length in this class you had been teaching, some students instead struggled to describe the ways in which their experiences were similar to those described in the memoirs and films that constituted the course material. Um, you had expected kind of a different reaction from the students there. So how can comics help us feel with rather than giving into this impulse to seek self-identification or uh, dare we even allow entertainment in every narrative, especially when we're talking about conflict or atrocities? This was such an interesting experience, and it was really formative just in my kind of uh, in my intellectual life. I was uh, I was TAing for uh, 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 Gary Weissman in uh, literature of the Holocaust course, and uh, we went through a number of different types of representations. So we had memoirs, we had uh, fiction, we had uh, like specifically short stories, we had film, we had, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's anti uh, like old older video footage and so on. And uh, we kept getting papers that were alarmingly like empathizing with victims of the Holocaust and 
which gave me the gig for like a variety of reasons. Uh, it, uh, because it, you know, kind of occupying that subject position, that's a privileged subject position that, uh, uh, like not everyone should have access to and not everyone should try to access, uh, it, it feels like a, a mini emotional colonization. Uh, and, uh, but there was a distinct change in tenor once we got to mouse. Uh, uh, people engaged differently. They were able to think about representational choices because Spiegelman does such a skillful job in laying out his own concerns about how to represent. So, uh, you know, whenever students were reading Elie Wiesel's Night, uh, they were like, oh, I, uh, I was imagining myself in his place. Whereas whenever they were reading, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it is troubling. It, it speaks to something really kind in the human spirit, but also like problematic. Uh, like, and, and I think also specifically in the American spirit. Uh, I, I sincerely doubt that uh, students in uh, Europe would react in some of the same ways, but like in America, it's very traditional to root for the underdog. Uh, it's why we have so many failing sports teams that nonetheless have a rabid fan base. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I, like, and I'm both charmed by that impulse where it's like, oh yeah, like it's oh you it, it's uh, you're hoping someone will succeed in spite of these like overwhelming odds and so on. Uh, but that can be like a really misplaced type of uh, uh, type of connection. And that idea of kind of seeking to occupy other lives uh, that kind of comes along with empathy uh, has that like twinge of uh, uh, essentially manifest destiny uh, where it's like, oh, this uh, this is this is a blank space by which I can uh, think about my own, uh, my own troubles, my own ideas. And uh, it was the body wash paper that did me in uh, when a student was uh, talking through like a difficult choice that an author who had, uh, was a Holocaust survivor, difficult choices, uh, uh, primo, it was Primo Levi, uh, that he had made and how he, quote, overanalyzed Auschwitz, uh, which, no, I, I think Auschwitz, I don't think there is such a thing as overanalysis of that. Uh, and she compared it, to, and this was a good student, like this was not a, this was not like someone who was cavalier about this material, but she was struggling for a connection so hard that she said, oh, his overanalysis of Auschwitz was like my own overanalysis of which body wash to use in the morning. And I was like, I cannot actually think of a less appropriate metaphor for this. Uh, it, uh, and, and so I kind of essentially went on an empathetic quest uh, in order to understand how the student came to like this particular remark, given that they took the material very seriously. And uh, after a talk with her, which was, by the way, very non-judgmental, not scoldy or anything like that, I was purely trying to figure out where she was coming from. Uh, she was like, yeah, no, I, I was troubled by that myself, but I was also concerned that I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't feel with Levy. Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't in his experience. I felt kind of distant from it. 
Uh, and I was like, yeah, and that's actually an okay reaction. So I realized she was struggling to identify with uh, victims slash survivors in ways that were totally inappropriate because she had been taught in other classes, oh, you need to find what you identify with in this. And that led to kind of a lecture uh, to the class more broadly about identification not being the kind of be all end all of encounters with literature. Uh, and I think that plus kind of encountering mouse and it's very consciously, uh, it's uh, metacognitive reflections on its own production was like a really helpful leap in terms of a lot of students' ability to engage with material on its own merits and on its and on its own decisions about representation, rather than that kind of idea of mapping themselves onto it. And uh, as I as I thought more about the kind of ethical parameters of that, I started staging more of uh, my classes as well as my scholarship in terms of okay, how is empathy being? Uh, it, how is empathy or sympathy or compassion uh, for individual characters being manipulated by comics artists and writers uh, to make these kinds of uh, ethical morasses? Uh, because after all, like when you watch a film like, uh, you know, Schindler's List, uh, it, uh, it's essentially asking you throughout the film to sympathize with a Nazi, to empathize with a Nazi, to see why he got to be a Nazi. Oh, sad. Uh, and uh, those are really interesting kind of ethical questions that... Uh, come up uh, as uh, especially in uh, in uh, film and literature, but very differently in comics. Uh, it, it, you know, when you watch a movie, it's like it's an hour and a half, and so it's an hour and a half for everyone. When you read a piece of literature, uh, it can take you anywhere from you know a few hours to twenty hours, depending on what your reading speed is, and so on. Uh, but with comics, comics ask us to slow down specifically because of that imagistic content. The impulse when students are first learning how to read comics is just to read the text and to kind of ignore the images uh, until they start to recognize that the images have a grammar and attention all their own. And uh, the, you know, the, the kinds of ethical questions that can be staged in comics, I think, are different from the ethical questions that can be staged in other forms of art and literature. I know I went off on a like tangent there. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I, it leads actually really nicely into my next question, which is uh, in your book, you do a lot of close readings of the comics, but you also uh, focus very often on the reader or reader behavior itself, including touching on cognition, psychology, even touching on mirror neurons. Uh, so I'd like to ask, does the depiction of fictional atrocity affect how we consume real life accounts of atrocity and vice versa um, as we're consumers of these comics, but also readers of the news or otherwise living in the world today? And this is still a question that troubles me after all these years, because I, I I have my ideas in in ethics in the gutter. Uh, 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 my ideas have evolved since then, especially in kind of the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, uh, what it means to consume images of violence that are true versus what it means to consume images of violence that are representational and fictional. And uh, I wouldn't, of course, use the term false. Uh, 
I mean, I'm very committed to the idea of historical fiction in comics, uh, uh, having possibilities uh, for ethical explorations that are unavailable in other forms. So like when you're looking at history as like a kind of document, you can see that there are gaps there, but you can't fill in those gaps without some kind of fictional element. Uh, where you can make best guesses, you can uh, essentially what people in historical fiction are doing is uh, trying to fill in the gutters that exist in history. Uh, and, uh, it's, and also to tell stories in ways uh, that uh, someone writing a memoir can't. I found Henry Greenspan's ideas of the tellable and the hearable in relation to Holocaust memoir to be like really useful in terms of thinking about historical fiction and comics. Uh, his idea is that uh, it's, uh, there are certain things that can be articulated by a Holocaust survivor, uh, for example, but you know, insert anyone experiencing some massive trauma. Uh, some things can be articulated, some things straight up can't be. And especially in traumatic events because of the de definition of trauma, which is that which overwhelms your ability to narrate the event into your normal life pattern. Uh, what is tellable is partially the things around that core trauma and not the core trauma itself. Uh, and then there's also what's hearable for the listener. Uh, what do you have the experience as a listener to actually understand about the story that you're hearing? And I think a lot of my students in this, uh, where it's like, you know, as an 18, 19 year old, you don't have a ton of life experience, but then you're encountering this uh, literature that represents these, uh, you know, atrocities that are hopefully kind of unimaginable for you, especially at that age, but like preferably for your entire life. Like, <laughs> Like I would prefer no one ever go through an atrocity again. Uh, but uh, how do you ethically encounter that? What kinds of decisions do you make as a reader? Uh, what kinds of experiences of your own do you draw in? Uh, when do you make connections? How do you make connections? And I think historical fiction in some ways frees people up a little bit more to explore certain kinds of reactions of their own in uh, in terms of ethical questioning uh, that uh, they can't really explore when they're getting like a memoir or a historical textbook or something like that, uh, simply because the stakes are a little lower because it's not something that directly happened necessarily. It's uh, base, based on a true story rather than a true story. Uh, so one of the reasons I got attracted to historical fiction is it allowed me to question the types of history that was getting explained versus what in fact actually happened, as well as like my predominant like motivating interest for essentially my entire life, which is just an interest in how everyday people in the past lived. Like I, I always had a great deal of trouble remembering the dates and kind of uh, surrounding influences of like big, huge events. Uh, but man, I can tell you all kinds of uh, stuff about like daily life in Sumer. Uh, why? Because that's what I was interested in. And I hated that that got written out of the historical record as something that mattered. 
this, by the way, connect, uh, connects to my interests in feminist theory very obviously, because so much of uh, that daily life that gets expunged from the historical record is the entire lives of uh, countless women through history. And uh, my excitement in historical fiction is very often seeing those unspoken lives uh, built back in. Now, it isn't technically giving the voiceless a voice because it is fiction, but it's making a best guess, which is all we can do with some of those gaps and aporias, which of course connects to the gutter and comics where we are ourselves making our best guesses at how these different images connect. And so you can see the kinds of resonances between poetry, history, and comics there. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, do you think you could go a little bit deeper into describing what you called the historiographic metafictional techniques as you applied them in your book? Yeah, well, uh, Linda Hutchins' work was just so uh, like, oh, I, I was so grateful. Uh, like I encountered her uh, pretty early in my PhD program and uh, just uh, absolutely fell in love. Like I still use her like all the time uh, because I find her just, uh, it, uh, oh, hello. Uh, sorry, I have a little visitor right here who wants some attention, my little space ghost. Uh, she's... Uh, She's one of the more legible theorists in terms of uh, in terms of innovating terminology that is uh, like quickly and easily applied. Like and uh, like it, it. She's she's not going out of her way to make things uh, enormously complex. She's uh, it, she's offering us this kind of wonderful tool, and she essentially like you know maps out. Okay, this is exactly how you use it. And uh, what a gift after reading Homi Baba, uh, <laughs> who I love also, but it, uh, but reading for the location of culture is its own kind of task. Uh, <laughs> so uh, with, uh, with kind of Hutchins definition, that idea of historical fiction as being uh, historiographic metafiction uh, as being something that both enshrines the past and questions it goes to that uh, idea of gaps that I was just talking about in terms of comics, history, and uh, poetry, where the gap is this kind of constitutive element. Now, in terms of like how to apply it to comics, uh, it really varies based on the comic and the kind of preoccupation. So like when I was writing the Deo Gradius chapter, which by the way, got rewritten three times, like from scratch, uh, that was uh, that was a beast because Deo Gradius is this extremely efficient graphic novel. It's 79 pages and packs a huge wallop. For listeners who don't know uh, the kind of history of Deo Gradius, uh, J.P. Stassen, a Belgian emigre to Rwanda in the post-Rwandan uh, genocide period, uh, wrote uh, Deo Gradius as kind of a meditation on uh, the experience of one man in both the before and the after of the Rwandan genocide. It's a very quiet graphic novel. It doesn't use a lot of text, uh, and uh, but it does have a lot of very interesting uh, details sutured into the background, uh, which are things that you're going to miss on your first and second read, uh, and potentially even after that as well. Uh, but 
just because you don't see it doesn't mean your brain doesn't. Uh, and so you have some of these things existing in your unconscious uh, as you're reading. And it traces the story of this young man who uh, is essentially like a normal uh, teenager. He uh, is chasing after girls and he's chasing after booze. Like, uh, and I love that partially because, you know, while he's existing in uh, Rwanda in this very foreign kind of context for like most of the readership uh, who would be in Europe and, uh, and America and Canada, uh, uh, his actual kind of like coming of age is this uh, like just very familiar story. So it promotes a great deal of empathy with uh, 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 with this character. Like this looks like every coming of age story that comes out of like uh, American literature, but his coming of age is disrupted by the genocide. Uh, and so there's this kind of abrupt break in how empathetic he is as a character. And then Eventually, it's re revealed, and I'm sorry for the spoiler here, uh, eventually it's revealed that he actually participated in the genocide and participated in slaughtering uh, girl, his girlfriend, his, uh, uh, his other love interest, who happened to be his girlfriend's sister, as well as their mother. Uh, and so what it's actually asking for in terms of its visual staging and its silence is for us to reflect on how we are... Uh, uh, how we are thinking about empathy for historical contexts that we might not really understand, that we might not really know. And Stassen does this amazingly skillful job of suturing in all of these myths surrounding why the Rwandan genocide happened as well. Uh, and sometimes coming from characters that we connect with, sometimes coming from characters that we're uh, apt to be suspicious of. Uh, and so so much of the historiographic metafictional technique in Deo Gratias is uh, asking us uh, the kind of basic epistemological question. But how do you know that you know that? Uh, it's, uh, are, you, are you sure you actually have enough information in order to render these emotional responses as well? Uh, and, you know, I applied it differently in relation to... Uh, uh, it, uh, Hellblazer is one of the examples where uh, where there was a big distinction. Uh, in this, in Deo Gradias, uh, it's how the reader is feeling towards Deo Gradias as well as other characters. In Hellblazer, uh, I look at a single issue uh, from the uh, the Third World series, and I am usually using little scare quotes around that. Uh, I think it's a problematically titled uh, it, uh, little run. Uh, but John Constantine goes to Tasmania in order to uh, track down the shadow dog. And he decides to uh, go on a spirit walk with the ghosts of the Tasmanian Aborigines. Uh, and instead, and he, you know, does the ritual and blah, blah, blah. But instead of ghost walking with the uh, Tasmanian Aborigines, he instead winds up uh, among the British soldiers who had been interning the Tasmanian Aborigines and eventually genociding them. Uh, and I loved that technique because it essentially emphasizes the ways in which, uh, it, you know, Constantine is essentially attempting to occupy this space of these victims. Uh, and 
he does the right ritual, but he's still disallowed from that space. And, you know, we can, we can have this empathetic reaction, but still not actually occupy those spaces and still sometimes get the wrong lessons from them as well, because he's about to be killed by the British soldiers when a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman yanks him out of this dream and she walks him back to his body. And it ends on this line that still spooks me to this day. Uh, and so he asked her questions and she told him all that he asked. And the implication there is very much, he did not ask the right questions. Uh, there's this gap, this space where he didn't know enough how to ask those questions that kind of lingers for the rest of that particular, uh, uh, that particular like subplot of uh, Hellblazer. And so when you're looking at the historiographic metafictional angle, it's like, okay, uh, how do you know what you know? But also, how do you even know what questions to ask of the things that you're encountering in those traces in the past? Uh, it's, uh, what kinds of questions uh, are, uh, do you not even have the kind of frame of reference for? Uh, and I think about this, by the way, in relation to poetry, in terms of some of my students not knowing what kinds of questions to ask of poems. Every semester I teach uh, The Ladies' Dressing Room by Jonathan Swift. Uh, and uh, it's essentially uh, a guy sneaking into a lady's dressing room and realizing that she sh she shits. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that like, you know, she doesn't wash her smock immediately after she wears it, and blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, but they don't understand what, uh, like a commode is. Uh, so I have to give them that kind of historical information for them to understand like, oh, in this in this totally different context, indoor plumbing didn't exist. So you had these other workarounds and blah, blah, blah. And uh, those kinds of gestures towards the past that in the context of the writing would have made complete sense to any uh, reader of the day, but is kind of like lost in history uh, that, that, that we don't even know how to articulate the question that would help us understand uh, the content of the comic or the poem. And I love those kinds of meditations. I, 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 I think about that a lot in relation to uh, it's, uh, really like it, my own developing comic as well. Like what questions am I not asking about my own history? What, uh, what, things, uh, what things are articulatable in this uh, province and what kind of has to exist in the margins given the dearth of evidence? And have you added anything more to your analytical toolkit uh, for working with historiographic metafictional works or, or with your own memoir works since you worked on the book project? Uh, so I go back to uh, James Phelan's uh, Living to Tell About It a great deal uh, because I think his kind of outline of some of those interactions between reader, text, and author are very useful, and I kind of expand on those a bit in the uh, uh, in the uh, introduction for the book. Uh, but I, I'm constantly just getting new ideas from who knows where. Uh, it uh, that you know you 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 descend down a rabbit hole and uh, and suddenly you uh, you found an entire new side quest that you do not have time for. Uh, 
One of the things that's been useful in uh, kind of one of the projects that's uh, just getting into press right now, uh, it's, uh, that is uh, the uh, co-edited uh, collected edition with Dr. Ian McDonald uh, called Days of Futures Past, uh, uh, which is exploring the intersections of science fiction and historical fiction. Uh, I've been thinking a lot of, uh, more about the ways in which science fiction has things to say about history, uh, historical metafiction as well. Uh, historiographic metafiction is uh, reflecting on the past and the ways that it can be questioned, but there are questions about the future as well. I mean, the future is an, un, uh, an unknown quantity. and. So often we kind of like have uh, like the idea of the butterfly effect where it's like, oh, uh, one butterfly uh, flicks his wings and that creates this uh, hurricane elsewhere. Uh, but you think about that in time travel narratives, too, where it's like you go back in the past and you kill Hitler, but like then a whole bunch of new Hitlers spring up or something like that. Uh, and so I've been thinking a lot more about uh models of temporality in terms of historiographic metafiction and ways that different models of temporality can uh, alter our conception of ethical behavior in the present too. Uh, because it's like, oh yeah, you change one minor thing in the past uh, and has this kind of butterfly effect for the future. Uh, but we don't really consider that as much in our present day lives. It's like, oh, this minor thing that I'm doing right now could have these like very massive consequences. Uh, and uh, uh, and it makes me sad that we neuter ourselves in that way so frequently uh, where we uh, we don't uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of think through the consequences of our more minor actions uh, and the, and not just in terms of the bad things that can come about, but the good things as well, like the small things that we can do that uh, can create this, uh, this better future, this more wonderful world, this like brighter space. And so when I'm thinking about history of metagraphics, I'm also thinking about the ways in which we can change how we tell stories about the past to make a better future too, and to make alternate futures imaginable. Like the only way you can imagine a different future is if you look more carefully at the past and you see the way the past doesn't necessarily align with this kind of like inevitability uh, as like, oh yes, this historical event occurred because of X, Y, and Z. Well, yeah, sort of, except for the fact that it could have gone another way as well. And any specific event has uh, causes and consequences, but to some extent is random too. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about uh, like the path, uh, telling stories of the past in order to imagine a better future and the models of time in terms of like Mircea Eliade's uh, 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 sacred time versus profane time. So like linear time that we all experience, uh, like the steady march forward that ends with us all in a box, as Tanahasi Coates said. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, like I'll never get that dark line out of my head. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the idea of uh, like spaces of ritual, uh, like bringing us out of this like steady march towards our deaths into the space of uh, the time, uh, time as it's experienced by the gods where, uh, you know, it's always this cycle of uh, festivals to which we can return to these important moments. Uh, 
And then there's like the model of Hebraic kind of rhythmic time as well that has uh, some other implications uh, that uh, I'm a little less familiar with. So I wouldn't want to get it, uh, it, I wouldn't want to get ahead of myself before I've done a little bit more thorough of a deep dive in that. <laughs> Great. And that's a excellent leeway into giving me a chance to ask you about the projects that you're working on right now, including your own comics and graphic memoir work. I never run out of work to do. Uh, I remarked the other day uh, to one of my friends, like, I am so good at making up new homework assignments for myself. <laughs> So the co-edited uh, uh, collected edition, uh, it, uh, the bulk of the work prior to peer review is done on that. So that's, again, uh, Days of Futures Past with Dr. Ian, Ian McDonald, Intersections of Science Fiction and Historical Fiction. Lots of really interesting chapters in it uh, and uh, lots of like it, exciting kind of global takes as well. Uh, we, uh, we try to make it very self-consciously uh, globally diverse. Uh, and uh, it, it, obviously there's some more work to do after the peer review, I'm sure. But uh, I'm also working on uh, a couple of monographs right now. Uh, so one's uh, Excessive Feels. Uh, I've been through a few titles, but I'm thinking about empathy and so, uh, like the intersections between empathy, social media, and memorializations of the Holocaust. Uh, and this came about partially because I started seeing all these like selfies of people at like Auschwitz and so on. And I was getting super grossed out by it uh, and started do it, like doing a bit more of a uh, deep dive and trying to figure out like different methods of communicative uh, pathways for the concept of a selfie. Uh, and I discovered this entire subgenre of uh, selfies and portraits at uh, the Berlin Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. And actually went there to kind of observe this in person. By the way, the first thing that I saw upon encountering the memorial was a gal with a selfie stick. I, I was like, oh. But there are actually different classes of selfies uh, within this kind of memorial. And, uh, and some of them are, you know, just super problematic, but some of them are Israeli teenagers who kind of make this like a journey specifically so they can be like, ha, still here, which has a very different kind of community pattern than, uh, uh, than just your average tourist uh, checking this off their uh, horribly named bucket list. Uh, and uh, then the people who like try to adopt a very serious pose uh, while taking a selfie at Auschwitz and so on. Uh, but I also got into like the uh, bizarre genre of Yelp reviews of uh, concentration camp sites. Uh, Oh yeah, uh, this is this is its own uh, this own its own difficult thing, and I found that many of them, uh, many of the one star reviews, uh, are because people didn't feel what they thought they were going to feel at these sites, and so it intersects interestingly with my kind of uh, interest in empathy and ethics and so on. Uh, and that project's kind of stalled because I actually uh, really need to get over to some more of these sites before I can uh, before I can fully uh, engage again in the chapters. Uh, and then I'm working on the uh, poetics of comics, which you just heard the paper, uh, uh, kind of an in initial draft of the paper for uh, at the historiographics uh, uh, conference in uh, Munich. And uh, that one's. Uh, uh, 
that one's kind of picking up steam. And it actually came about because of your conference. Uh, it, uh, because I was explaining my current projects and, and a couple of folks were like, no, we want that one. And I was like, ah, okay, time to change direction. Uh, uh, but that's been really fun because I've been reading up on a lot of poetics theory and thinking about how poetics theory can be applied to comics in productive ways. Uh, and this is uh, not so much a follow-up to ethics in the gutter. It's really a very different approach. Uh, uh, I'm also working on, uh, for Frederick Luis Aldama's uh, biographic series, I'm doing a biography of Garth Ennis uh, and have been enjoying that immensely because he is a whole, I've been reading his interviews and he's just hilarious. Uh, and uh, and I, I, I personally, like, I know a lot of people have a lower tolerance for like uh, ridiculous violence than I do, uh, but like, I love Ennis specifically because his, uh, his writing of violence is so beautifully over the top and yet so wonderfully legible for those of us who have witnessed violence. Uh, it's, uh, people who haven't witnessed violence in real life sometimes don't understand the extent to which these cartoony, quote, quote unquote, cartoony representations are actually quite accurate for how, uh, uh, how violence overwhelms the senses, how colors become brighter, how uh, things seem to move in slow motion and so on. And uh, so that's one of the concepts that I'm kind of teasing out in his work. Uh, and then I'm, you know, steadily working on my own comic. Uh, I managed to get 20 new pages uh, colored in ink this summer. Uh, my comic's a memoir. It was originally designed to be about kind of growing up as a teenage girl and uh, having to deal with uh, all the normal things teenage girls have to deal with. Uh, and I, uh, prior to a breast reduction surgery, had very abnormally large breasts, which drew just the worst kind of attention. Uh, and I had envisioned it as this kind of meditation on my kind of journey uh, to uh, through uh, kind of being the sexual target to getting the breast reduction and so on. Uh, and the more I wrote, the more I realized it wasn't that story at all. Uh, it is a story still of teenage girlhood and being preyed upon and so on. But it's also the story of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I was growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio in the 90s. And the uh, police force uh, was run by a sheriff who had ties to the KKK. Uh, uh, there were many shootings of unarmed black men, uh, eventually culminating in a series of riots in 2001. And so during high school, uh, I was watching all of this kind of resentment simmer. Uh, I was uh, one of very few white people living in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, uh, which was, by the way, uh, Madisonville was a wonderful neighborhood to grow up in, uh, in many ways. Like we had wonderful neighbors, uh, it was all working class families, but there was a significant uh, portion of gang violence that we had to deal with as well. And this includes like, you know, bullets, uh, stray bullets coming through our windows. This includes, you know, having a gun held on me in eighth grade by just like someone random. Uh, but having that insight, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, as a white person to kind of see what some of the difficulties were in this area uh, and uh, and uh, and then, of course, going to an enormously uh, uh, racially diverse high school, Walnut Hills. Uh, 
uh, and seeing the kinds of separative functions that could happen even within these diverse environments uh, uh, led me to this meditation on, okay, uh, what is Cincinnati? How did Cincinnati happen? Uh, and uh, Cincinnati's gone through like a renaissance in the last like 20 years where it's become this like, you know, culinary destination and uh, much uh, more upscale. Uh, it, during the 90s, like there were a lot of rundown areas. The, it, uh, there were a lot, uh, there was a lot of racial tension for very legible reasons. Uh, uh, there, uh, uh, there was, of course, like, you know, uh, like the experience of most teenage girls, a lot of older men preying on younger women. And so I was thinking about all the resonances between these different issues. And part of it is thinking through the history of Cincinnati as this kind of beacon of the Underground Railroad, but also this like enormously racist place that uh, very much wished it was on the other side of the Mason-Dixon. And uh and it and it's interesting teasing these different aspects out uh, because uh, you know I remember underground railroad tours going through uh, uh, through my neighborhood uh, when I was growing up, uh, but I also remember a lot of people having Confederate flags around in spite of the fact that we were north of the Ohio, uh, and uh, it. And some of this has been congealing in terms of thinking about like Toni Morrison's Beloved, which tells a really compelling historical uh, fictional narrative of the Margaret Garner story, which is the woman who uh, had been enslaved, had escaped slavery with her children and was caught by uh, uh, by uh, it's, uh, it people uh, who wanted to bring her back into slavery. And she chose to, uh, you know, uh, murder her uh, her kids. Uh, and that's like a quintessentially kind of Cincinnati ethical meditation. Uh, and I think of the way those kinds of histories connect to the type of histories we were told as well. Uh, and the things that were narrated, because we all had like a Cincinnati history class at one point or another. And uh, and just its history is like, you know, this pig processing place too. Uh, and uh, its affinities with Kentucky, yet its kind of differences from Kentucky. And uh, and it also like the pride aspects of growing up in Appalachia and uh, having this like really rich culture that, uh, you know, has given me this enormous amount of satisfaction over my life, uh, especially in terms of like culinary pursuits, I might add, uh, but also the poetry, the music, the artwork, uh, it's, uh, especially the folk art uh, and, uh, and of course, bluegrass and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but also the troubles that are at the heart of, uh, of uh, many of those uh, aspects of coming together. And just Cincinnati is an enormously Southern city in a way that you wouldn't expect for some, something technically in the North. Uh, and so thinking about the tensions between North and South as well, but it's, tur it's turned into one of those projects that's that's doing things that I did not expect it to do. So I've kind of bracketed the story about uh, it's, uh, it, the, uh, the eventual breast reduction uh, for a later graphic memoir, because I realized the ways in which the breast reduction connected to my kidney failure last summer and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and oh, and I have two poetry manuscripts that I've been polishing off and sending out. <laughs> 
<laughs> sounds busy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. It sounds like you've got a lot on your plate, uh, but I really appreciate it that you made time for this today. And it's been great talking with you about the book. And I very much look forward to your upcoming work. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Ellie. It was just a delight to talk with you. And I just, I, I always love our conversations. And I'm going to try to get back to uh, uh, to Europe uh, sometime next summer, hopefully for like a two week stretch. So uh, I will pop in to see you. <laughs> You're always invited. Right. Thanks.